Welcome to Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla, where it's you who sets the conversation. Join us for the next hour as we take a fresh look at how we think about spirituality. Welcome, welcome. It's Thursday afternoon. You know what that means. That means that it is Fresh Thinking time here with us on IFM. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the conversation. It's interesting times on every front. Uh, you know, at one point, we were just saying it's interesting times because of COVID-19. And then we were saying it's interesting times because of lockdown. And now we're saying it's interesting times because it almost snowed <laughs> in, in Joburg. Uh, some people even tell you, I think that they, they think they saw some snow <laughs> or whatever it is. And people will tell you it's interesting times because of uh, opening up of the economy. There, there's so many things to talk about. But what caught my eye, and it does from time to time, this is one of those things that pops up from time to time, and whenever it does, it uh, gives you some pause for thought, <clears throat> is people saying, you know, there's uh, information coming out about how during this lockdown period there's been gender-based violence, and any time you talk about violent crime, especially here in South Africa, people start to talk and beat the drum of bring back the death penalty. Now, obviously, it's a moot point really, in South Africa, because we have a constitutional court ruling, so it's not really going to happen, I don't think. But that's still, it still invites a conversation, and that's the conversation I'd like to have with you today. What do you think about it, the notion of a death penalty in the 21st century? I mean, here we are, it's the modern age, and supposedly we're all so, uh, you know, connected and, and in touch, and uh, I don't know, accepting of people, and all the wonderful things that are associated with living in the modern age. So does a death penalty have place in today's world? I mean, right now we have protests in other parts of the world against police brutality, and here back at home we have a conversation about whether or not we should have a death penalty. Sounds just a little bit incongruous, especially when you consider that it's often the same people who make both arguments, like speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You know, um, Are you for <coughs> heavy-handed um Police action, but against the death penalty, not likely. Most people are probably for both. But yet, you'll find that there are people who are so outspoken against the principle of the death penalty, yet they will, uh, sorry, they're so outspoken against police brutality, yet they believe that we should be bringing back the death penalty. So that's interesting. I think that that's the kind of thing that we should discuss. What would a terror perspective on this be? So, as always, it's a conversation that you are part of which means that you should get on board. Usually, most people like to interact with us on social media, so that's fine. Running this conversation live on Facebook Live on my page. It's also on the Chai FM Facebook page that you could comment. You can comment on Twitter at Chai FM or directly at Ravashish. You could send an SMS, 34519. There's various ways that you can connect with us, and we would love to hear your voice, as we always do. So get on board and be part of the conversation. What do you say from a Jewish perspective, from a Torah perspective? Do you think that in today's world there is room for a death penalty? Or do you think that this is something a little bit archaic or maybe more than a little bit and it's time for it to be put to bed for once and for all? Love to hear your thoughts. So join in the conversation. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. All right, so as always, you know, as soon as you start the conversation, so the conversation begins and there are opinions coming through, which is lovely. Um, 
<coughs> kind of predictable some of the opinions that are, and that's why I'm probably going to leave them a little bit till later, you know, just to make it a little bit more fun. Let's keep the predictable ones till later, and let's tackle those that are perhaps a little bit less predictable. So when somebody replies, I would like to hear your views on the subject, well, you can kind of expect that that's what's going to happen, because we are having a conversation, and you probably expect that I'm going to have a uh, an opinion on this. You can well expect that. Nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have an opinion. I mean, obviously, I'm going to weigh in at some point. Uh, thanks, Benji, who's, uh, who likes the idea of running it on Facebook Live simultaneously. So I hope that that means that you're going to interact as well. Um, <clears throat> here's Melissa, who says, I think that there is room for the death penalty, an eye for an eye. <clears throat> Please excuse me. So I think many people would say exactly that. An eye for an eye, and the Torah believes in justice, and of course... People should be held accountable for their actions, and that's true. I mean, one of the fundamental principles within Judaism when it comes to laws of damages and and injury and that kind of thing is the principle that a human being must always be expected to do the worst. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean that we diss human beings. It doesn't mean that we, we, we don't appreciate human beings. It just means that when it comes to the concept of damage, when it comes to the concept of injuries, you have to expect that human beings are going to do bad things. It's just the way that we're wired, right? So to say that um, we should expect that people are going to do bad things and therefore we need some kind of a system in place to punish the perpetrators, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. The argument is always around how that punishment should be meted out. And, of course, a big part of them, that's one of the things that bothers me about this is, who are these people who are going to dish out this punishment, and how do we know that we can trust them? So, yes, an eye for an eye. I think it sounds very nice in principle. sounds uh, rather romantic, you know, uh, theoretical, an eye for an eye. But we do know, for a, just to tackle that one straight up, we do know that when the Torah uses the expression an eye for an eye, it is non-literal. That is absolutely clear according to all of the commentators, the Talmud, etc. It is non-literal. It does not mean that if somebody pokes out somebody's eye, we go and blind them. We don't. That's not how we're supposed to interpret an eye for an eye. So yes, people should be responsible for their actions, absolutely. But who says? And that's what we've got to be so careful about. And, by the, and not just in this conversation, but in any conversation. <clears throat> if we're going to invoke Torah... We need to make sure that the Torah that we're referring to is accurate. Don't just quote things, so to speak, out of context. We've we've always got to appreciate what is the context, what is the tradition, how are we to understand that particular quote. And an eye for an eye is a really good one. And I think when you start to talk about capital punishment, you're going to see that that is also exactly one of those areas that's very, very often quoted completely out of context. In fact, I'll tell you an interesting thing just the other day here on Facebook, actually. There was somebody who asked a question that they had uh, begun to study a passage within the Torah, and they were horrified. They obviously hadn't studied Torah before. I don't know this person's background, but they were horrified by some of the things that they read and some of the conduct of the people who are characters in the story. And they wanted some guidance and some insight. Now, what's good about that is that they wanted some guidance and some insight. Some people, unfortunately, don't even realize that that should be a conversation or a question. The reality is that when you read things in the Torah, 
the scriptural Torah was never intended to be taken at face value. And we can prove this from a hundred different examples. Here's one. The Torah says, you shall write them uh, on the doorposts of your house. Write what? <laughs> what do you write? Who is supposed to write it? How many doorposts? Which part of the doorpost? How are you supposed to get onto the doorpost? There are a hundred questions that are just not, and this is a fundamental part of Judaism. So when it says that an eye for an eye, yes, you could choose to read it at, at face value and say an eye for an eye means that you treat people as they behave. So if they behave badly, you kind of behave badly to them. But <laughs> that's just not how we do it. That's, that's just not realistic. That is not the nature of uh, how the Torah understands these things. So we need something a little better to work with. Uh, yeah, definitely seeing some strong views over here. Let's just get back to uh, the, the first one. Well, there was one over here that I wanted to read to you that came through on Twitter. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. Anyway, uh, there it is. So here's Jay. Jay says, I used to believe in the death penalty. That's why I wanted to find it because it is interesting when, when people think about something and change a view. It's always interesting. Why do you change your view? So Jay says, I used to believe in the death penalty. In the death penalty. These days, it is hard for me to trust the state with that kind of power. Okay, so before I read you the rest of his, of his message, there's something right there. Like I say, we have people right now in modern, western, first world countries complaining that we can't necessarily trust the authorities and they overstep the boundary and they abuse power. And yet in a country such as ours, where we're not absolutely, uh, not exactly the, the, the model of first world, we're kind of, you know, somewhere, I don't know, in between. So do we trust the authorities to that extent? So that's why I find it really interesting when somebody says, I don't know if we can trust the state. I don't know, you're going to give these people powers. So again, like I said, it's a, new, a moot point because here in, in South Africa it's unconstitutional and it's been ruled that way and there, and there isn't going to be a death penalty. And yet people still drum on about it every time. So we're talking theoretically over here and specifically from the position of Torah. So from a Torah perspective, can you trust the authorities? If you want to talk about capital punishment, and you do believe, because some people have already sent messages through that there's studies and evidence that capital punishment is not a deterrent. And incidentally, there are those who will argue that biblical capital punishment was intended as a deterrent, not as an actual punishment. And we can have that debate as well. But there are those who will tell you, and there's evidence to support it, that capital punishment is not a deterrent. So if it's not a deterrent against crime, which is the motivation why a person would want to have capital punishment... And we're not 100% sure that we trust the people who are going to be in charge of this incredibly powerful way of dealing with the citizens. Remember, we say criminals, but not always is a person necessarily proven beyond a shadow of a doubt to be a criminal. And that's the second point of Jay's comment. Jay says, especially in the light of DNA evidence that has recently exonerated numerous convicts. That's such an interesting conversation because it's a big part of this and a big part of the headspace of, of Judaism and Torah. In our courts, we would accept circumstantial evidence in order to convict a criminal. And let's even say, yes, now we have situations where DNA would be sufficient to be able to exonerate a convict. Let's flip that for a second. From a Torah point of view, would DNA evidence be enough to convict a criminal in the first place. So yes, we probably would accept it in order to exonerate. The question is, would we use it 
to put somebody away in the first place. And, and the first thing that comes to mind, and by the way, nothing we're talking about over here is going to be exhaustive. It's a very big subject, and it touches on many areas of law, which is what's so interesting. But one thing that immediately comes to mind, there's a cycle called the, the Mishnah Torah cycle, where you study a portion of the teachings of the Rambam, the Halachic Code, code of the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Maimonides, uh, every single day. And if you follow this particular study system, Every year, you finish all 14 volumes of Jewish law. It's fascinating. It gives you a bird's eye view of the whole of everything that the Torah speaks about. But specifically, at the moment, we're studying the laws of the courts. And it's fascinating because everybody says, yes, capital punishment, and absolutely, we have sweeping powers. But once you start to read these uh, these laws, you see, hang on a second, it's not so simple. Not so simple. And I'll give you one example in just a moment, but before that, I'd like to invite you, if you do have comment that you would like to make on this, well, by all means, you know how it is, you can always get involved, as you always do, 34519 is our SMS line, you can also get involved on Twitter, at Chai FM, and uh, at Rabashish, if you want to message me directly, also on, on Facebook, I'll come back to you in just a moment. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. All right, so talking about the death penalty capital punishment because I'm seeing it all over social media here in South Africa and everybody's saying, bring it back. We need a way to control violent crime. I didn't give you the number for Telegram, so if you would like to send a message via Telegram, this is what you do, 0618951019. There's a whole lot of ways to connect and a whole lot of ways to share your opinions, whether they be on social media or via your cell phone, which I guess is also social media. Here is uh, Wandile on Twitter who says there's absolutely no need for capital punishments. punishment. I keep saying it in the plural, and I'll tell you why. Because in Torah, there are various forms of capital punishment. That's why it keeps coming up in my head as, as plurals. Uh, he continues, mistakes have been made before and mistakes will be made again, which is one of the great fears. What if you execute the wrong person. So I was about to tell you, if you follow the daily study schedule of the Rambam, he talks, actually, the section that we've been studying the last few days, not today, yesterday and the day before, was the section about capital punishment in Judaism. So it's it's quite fresh information, it's quite relevant, and uh, it's interesting what he says. Many of the things that he says are interesting. Here's one to start. But just the perspective, the psychology of a court that is going to act to, to execute somebody. So what's the psychology of that court? What kind of a headspace do they have to be in in order to be able to execute? Again, for many of us, the concept of executing a fellow human being, no matter what the crime, is very difficult to come to terms with. Very difficult. So look at what he says. There's a few things. First of all, he says, there's no such concept as lawyers in the Jewish court system, in the Torah court system. There's no there's no concept of a lawyer. Now, that's a total shift already, right? Of course, the goal of a lawyer is to win a case on behalf of the client, and the Torah finds that objectionable. In fact, in Ethics of the Fathers, it says you should not be like a lawyer. Okay, so all the lawyers out there are going to sue me for this, but that's the Torah's perspective, that there should be nobody arguing on behalf of the litigants, or in this case, the, 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 the accused in the courtroom. Okay, so then how do you determine anything in the courtroom. So, first of all, the size of the court. This is a fascinating insight before we go anywhere. 
as far as Torah law is concerned, if you want to bring a capital case to the courts, you have to have no less than 23 expert judges, what we would call today Supreme Court justices, sitting on that bench. Let me reiterate that. 23 Supreme Court justices sitting on the bench, or at least high court, right? Because you could, you could have it outside of the Jerusalem, which was the Supreme Court. So 23 high court judges who would sit on the bench to hear the case. Let that sink in before we talk about this willy-nilly. Yes, we should kill people because they've killed others. 23 judges. First point. Second point that makes it very interesting is that each of the the people who, well, let's say, who would be involved, you'd have the accused. That means that there had to be somebody who accused that person. The accuser would not be the victim, not even a member of the victim's family. So that's a total shift as well. Who now brings this case, this case to court? Not the people who've suffered, not the people who have a chip on their shoulder. Yes, parenthetically, there is always the possibility that the Torah says, a family might act in a vigilante manner, and we have to consider that in the process. And there are checks and balances for that particular response. Uh, not that it's endorsed, but there are checks and balances in place to be able to tackle it should a family go vigilante. We're talking inside the court system. So the family members are not the ones who bring the case to court. So who brings the case to court? Second mind-blowing insight into capital punishment and terror law. Eyewitnesses. Adult eyewitnesses who have no personal relationship either with each other or the victim or the perpetrator. In other words, they have no subjectivity when it comes to this particular case. They have no vested interest. Okay, so you've got 23 judges on the bench. You've got two or more eyewitnesses, and they will present their case in front of these judges. Now, that's a very different kind of legal system to what we're used to. They will only present their personal version of the story. That's it. They will not bring bloody exhibit A, bloody knife to the court. They will not bring exhibit B, victim's shredded shirt to the court. None of that is going to play a role, which is very interesting. Very interesting. Because it's altogether different from how we understand the court systems and how they apply in our world. Then... Those two or more witnesses would be individually grilled and not as we know it today where you have a packed courtroom and perhaps people hear the evidence of other people. It's individual. So this particular witness comes in, 23. Can you imagine standing in front of 23 judges, people who are experts not only in law, but in order to qualify as a high court judge, you had to have a pretty decent general knowledge. You had to be astute in a whole lot of areas. You had to be independently successful and wealthy, so you were not open to bribery. There were a whole lot of things that went into that mix. You've got 23 of these people shooting cross-examination questions at you. You had better be a very solid witness if you were going to stand up to their scrutiny. And you could theoretically be dismissed on, on a minor detail, incidentally, even though there were certain key issues that would automatically ground the case if you couldn't answer certain key questions, obvious questions, time, location, things like that. But in the course of the cross-examination, there was the possibility of other less key questions derailing the entire process. So you had to know as a witness that if you were going to appear, appear in front of the court, you really had to have a solid story. 
Oh, and if you were caught out, depending on how you were caught out, so for example, if other witnesses would come and, and prove that you could not have been at the scene of the crime, then you potentially would be punished in the way that you had wanted the victor, the, the perpetrator to be punished. So you're carrying a heavy load by the time you stand in front of that courtroom. The judges would then, let's assume you go through the whole process and they give their testimony, and the judges then have to deliberate over the testimony. Here's another interesting thing. If they deliberate over sentencing and, and a, a case, a capital case, they have to fast that day. So think about the psychology of that. It's a, it's a hectic day. It's, a, it's difficult. It's a time where we're weighing up the possibility of human life over here. In fact, it's in these laws that the Talmud and then subsequently Maimonides both quote the principle that one life is the equivalent of a full universe. So you really have to take this thing so seriously. Interesting. So interesting. Okay, there's a lot more that we could talk about, but there's a few messages that have come through that I'd like to share with you as well. Here on Twitter, we have Abraham who says, there is no room for the death penalty in the 21st century. Now listen to what he says next. Interesting point. He says, those who do not care about others' lives do not care about their own. Very interesting. I think that that note about fasting on the day of uh, coming to, to a judgment and then, by the way, there could be no delay between judgment and sentencing. That's another interesting thing. So you had this very weighty responsibility as a judge that once you make your decision, you've got to carry out your decision. So that's another whole psychological component that comes into the story. But it's interesting what uh, what Abraham says over here that a person who does not care about somebody else's life, so that the notion of capital punishment being that perhaps you don't necessarily care about life. You know, it's easy to talk about capital punishment. Can you imagine being the one who had to actually uh, yank the, the the lever on 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 the, on the gallows or push the the switch on the electric chair or whatever it is. I mean, it's, this is heavy stuff. It's it's a throwaway comment when you're upset and emotional about a situation. It is not necessarily a true reflection on what the process is actually like. So it, it, it's interesting. Like I say, every time that this conversation comes up, I find it fascinating. People have very strong views, usually emotional views. And when you look at it from an objective uh, resource perspective, not so simple. What do you think? Should there be room for a death penalty in the 21st century? Do you believe that uh, the Torah would endorse it? I really would like to hear more views on this. 34519, if you're going to send us an SMS, use Telegram on 0618951019. Otherwise, we're live on Facebook. On my Facebook page, so you can be part of that Facebook Live. You can comment on the Chai FM Facebook page. You can catch us on Twitter at Chai FM or me directly at Rabbi Shish. What do you think about this? While you're mulling, the, mulling that over, you should know that Doug Fish has just received fresh off the boat sushi grade tuna, now at the special low price of only 270 rand per kilo. Take advantage of this great deal while stocks last. You can get it raw for an extra 40 rand per kilo. and the, uh, Sorry, you can get it raw or for an extra 40 rand per kilo. They will cook it for you. Fresh Cobble Joe also now available in store. Doug Fish, always fresh, never frozen. I think we should start something over here at Chaifen that if you would like to advertise something as good as that, sushi-grade tuna, 
I think you should send samples to the people who are going to leave the, read the live reads. Anybody else in favor of that? 34519 if you think they should be sending us uh, some samples so we can give a real objective insight <laughs> into the uh, grade of fresh, never frozen fish. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Well, a t-shirt that you don't have is a High FM t-shirt. Don't despair though, here is how you can get one. High FM is currently appearing on the electronic billboard corner Grayson Drive and Catherine in Santon. Take a photo, either tweet it at High FM or post it on Facebook and tag 101.9 High FM. When we see you, we'll give you a t-shirt. You only have until Friday the 19th, that's tomorrow, to do it. So, been there, heard that, got the t-shirt. Uh, I don't have the t-shirt yet, but Grayson Drive, not too far. This might be something to consider. Assuming, of course, that they're really good, great t-shirts. Uh, maybe I need to ask Kathy a little bit more about that. We're talking today, if you've just joined us, either on High FM. 101.9 on your radio or highfm.com streaming or Facebook Live, wherever it is that you've joined us. If you have just joined us today talking about, I was going to talk about something else, but anyhow, this is what we got into because I saw there was a frenzy about bring back the death penalty for people who, God forbid, um, commit serious crimes, things like murder, uh, rape, etc. So I thought, let's talk about it. Is that something that Judaism would endorse? Is it something that we should uh, <laughs> that we should support? Is it something that a Jewish person can, in good conscience, say, "Yes, we should bring back death penalty"? Love to hear your thoughts and insights on that. Now, here's an interesting one. Yoni says also on Facebook, uh, it's certainly allowed in theory because there's an expression in Jewish law that says that the based in the Courts are allowed, uh, the, the, the quotation is not exactly right, they, they're, they're entitled to use, so to speak, sweeping powers. In other words, if the society is in a mess and there's anarchy, then it is acceptable for the court system to institute radical uh, responses. So he says that's not worse than government, but I'd be pretty reluctant in practice. I think we'd all be reluctant in practice. Well, would we all be reluctant in practice? I'm not sure. Like I say, if you go back and you read what Jewish law, what Torah law actually says about capital punishment, you will realize that it is something very, very hectic. It doesn't just happen just like that. Oh, so-and-so murdered, so now we're going to execute them. Not simple at all. We've already shown that you need 23 judges minimum on that court case. We already showed that the witnesses have to be very, very clear on this story. We've seen that the headspace of the judges is that this is something extremely serious. One life is, wor is worth a whole world, and they fast at the time that they have to reach a sentence. Here's another interesting thing. Now, we know that in order for anything to pass in Jewish law, it always has to be passed by majority vote. So if you've got these 23 judges then you need a majority of those judges to feel that this person actually deserves the punishment that we're paying for. But you can't, you can't have a simple majority. So listen to this. If you've got 23 judges, and let's say, obviously, the reason it's 23 judges is that you can always have a majority. So let's say you have 11 guys who say that this person is innocent. 
And 12 people, 12 of the judges say that this person is guilty and therefore deserves the death penalty. We do not execute. Because in order for the courts to be able in Torah law to execute somebody, you need more than a simple majority. You need at least a two-judge majority. But to exonerate somebody, a simple majority will do. So, just to put it simply, if 11 judges say innocent and 12 judges say guilty, he's off the hook. Because you've only got one judge more on the guilty side. But if 11 judges would say guilty and 12 judges would say innocent, he would walk because we look to exonerate. We prefer to exonerate. Isn't that interesting? It's a whole different perspective. And that is, by the way, bearing in mind the philosophy of capital punishment in Judaism, which again is completely different to the philosophy of how it is in regular court systems. So in a regular legal system, why do you execute somebody? Two reasons. Remove the menace from society and provide a deterrent for would-be menaces. Okay, those are the two reasons. And that's not the reason, according to Torah, actually. Maybe there's a bit of the deterrent element, but the primary reason why a person would undergo capital punishment is because, listen to this, it's a fascinating concept. Well, let's step back a, a second and then we'll come back to this fascinating concept. Step back a second the Torah view of reward and punishment, the Torah view of perpetrators and the consequences of their actions is that we are not the final arbiter on consequence. We're given a certain range of things that we're allowed to do under certain circumstances. We are allowed to have a court system. That court system is allowed certain powers. But that's it. We're not the final arbiters. So should there be a situation where the court's hands are tied or the evidence is insufficient, we don't think, oh, miscarriage of justice and it's unfair that the perpetrator got away because we know that at the end of the day, God runs the world and he's got his ways and things will happen. In fact, the Talmud even says this, that when they dissolved the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of Judaism, 40 years before the destruction of the Second Temple, that was the last time that there was uh, capital punishment in Judaism. So before that, well, slightly before that, when they dissolve the Sanhedrin, it says there is no longer the capacity to execute people, but God will find a way that suits the particular punishment that they need. And that gives us a sense of comfort. I don't have to control the entire system from top to bottom. I have to do the best that I can do with the resources that are afforded me, with the guidelines that the Torah says. I follow those guidelines. If at the end of that I come out with a conviction and this person is proven to deserve to be killed, he gets killed. If not... It's not the end of the story. It's not that he got away scot-free. God has his ways. That is a fundamental underpinning of the whole theory and philosophy of punishment in Judaism. Now, specifically, um, that, that brings us now to the, to the major point. The major point is that if a person does something wrong, this is the philosophy of Judaism, if somebody does something wrong, they create harm in the tangible physical reality, and they create harm in the spiritual reality. So they may injure themselves physically, or they may injure somebody else physically. But if a person attacks somebody else, the physical injuries are on the victim. The spiritual injury is done to the perpetrator. So that person's soul has now been wounded. 
And depending on how severe the particular crime is, that will determine how badly the soul is wounded. The court systems can't really do much to help the soul. That's the person's business. And that's difficult. That's going to take a tremendous amount of introspection and spiritual focus and growth and reparation, a whole lot of things, to be able to allow that soul to heal. Sometimes physical reparations assist that spiritual process. Somebody steals, we give them the opportunity to replace what they stole and to add a penalty, and that assists the soul to be able to heal. Somebody murders, that is a big deal. We're not going to make it so easy for that person's soul to heal. They are going to have to do that work. So if they, we see a menace to society and it's an ongoing issue, we've got a serial killer on our hands, obviously we have to remove that menace from society, no question. But the overarching thought is, this human being who has sunk to such a desperate state spiritually that he's willing to harm somebody else, we're not even going to give him the opportunity to heal so easily. He's going to, so to speak, have to earn that opportunity. And so the death penalty is seen as a big part of healing the soul, destroying the body to heal the soul. And it's not easy to get that. So a death penalty is not so accessible and not so um, at your fingertips. Well, there's some food for thought. I'd love to hear your opinions as well. Three, four, five, one, nine. Send us an SMS. You can send a message on Telegram, 0618951019. Some uh, nice interaction here on Facebook Live and on Twitter, at ChaiFM and at Rabashish. What is your view and perspective? This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. And there I thought that rabbis were world leaders in sleep. We start talking, people doze off just like that. Guess we could have been making a bit of money over here. Hey, mattresses to go, <laughs> to go with the uh, experience. Anyhow, we're talking about uh, the death penalty and the call that people are making at the moment to bring back the death penalty. Think it would be a good thing. I'm not convinced that from a Torah perspective it is that simple. The death penalty back in those days when we were allowed to have it was taken under very, very serious consideration every single time. And here's an interesting thing that people don't know. Like I mentioned before, the Sanhedrin, the highest court of Judaism, which sat in Jerusalem and had 71 members, was dissolved and with it, the, a lot of the court proceedings were suspended 40 years before the destruction of the second temple. That's a long time ago, so 2,000 odd years ago. Now what's interesting about it is that if you read the Talmud, it says even before that, they stopped hearing capital cases. And you know why they stopped hearing capital cases? This is going to totally flip anybody's thinking. Why did they stop hearing capital cases? Because there were too many. Isn't that interesting? Most people who argue for a death penalty argue that because there's so much crime, so many perpetrators, that's why we need a very severe kind of punishment in order to curtail it. But Torah thinking says, if we see that there is a spike, if we see that there's a growth in crime, then that tells you that now we should no longer have a death penalty. Isn't that fascinating? Should not have a death That's when they suspended the death penalty, when murder went up. Exactly the opposite of the typical conversation argument that people make. Everybody says, more murders, more reason for death penalty. Torah says, more murders, 
get rid of the death penalty. Why? Because we don't want to land up as a society that has to be that way. The Talmud says that if a Sanhedrin, if a Beth Din, if a 23-man court would sentence somebody to death more frequently than once in seven years, there's even an opinion in the Talmud that says once in 70 years, they would be considered a terror organization. Can you imagine that? This is the, the justice system appointed and endorsed by God himself. <laughs> and, and if they start to become a little bit too bloodthirsty and people start to, you find that, that they are executing victims, something's wrong. Something's wrong with the system. So, why is that? There's a lot more we could talk from a legal point of view. We don't have a fortune of time to do so. But I think hopefully that this is illustrated. Just a few perspectives on this notion of the death penalty. That while, again, emotionally people get very caught up with it. We need to do something, something dramatic. I'll tell you what we need to do. Dramatic. We need to re-educate people. That's what we need to do. Yes, agreed. Some people are past their sell-by date. And there's nothing we can do and we're not going to reform them. But what we typically do to people is we take small-time criminals, arrest them, put them in an environment with hardened criminals for a period of time and expect them to come out and be reformed people. It doesn't really make sense. You should do some research on this because it's really interesting. There's a lot of interaction that the Rebbe had, the Babacha Rebbe had with communal leaders, with political leaders, with lawyers, with, uh, with, with people who are in the criminal justice system and made exactly this point. We're in our, in our frenzy to try and somehow settle crime, what we actually end up doing is we stigmatize small-time criminals. We create social environments that are not conducive to reform. We put people into the most toxic environment as a punishment, and then we wonder why things don't improve. What we should be doing radically is, like every other area of life, and this is not my own thoughts, this is literally paraphrasing the Rebbe, is prevention is always better than cure. Anybody will tell you that. If we had a vaccination tomorrow for COVID-19, everybody would say, fantastic, go out, get the shot, go back to normal, interact with people, socialize, have a beer, do whatever you do. Because we all acknowledge that prevention is better than cure. It's cliche, but it's true. Somebody uh, commented earlier, I asked the question, like, what would be the most profound lesson from this whole lockdown that you hope that your children will have learned from you during this period? Somebody said an interesting thing. Somebody said, I wish, I hope that my children will learn to keep an emergency fund. Prevention is better than cure. Prepare for the rainy day. Expect that something out of the ordinary can happen. We speak about it in so many different areas, but somehow when it comes to crime, we always talk about react reactionary um, responses. Which is fine, you have to. If a guy's breaking into your house, you need the police to arrive and to remove the threat, obviously. But are we just going to perpetuate this from generation to generation? That's why I ask the question, does capital punishment have a place in the 21st century? It shouldn't. Radical education should have a place in the 21st century. When I say radical education, a total upheaval in the way that we train people from the younger stage about right and wrong. How do we train them from the younger stage? Behave or else. That's a terrible education. Behave or else. It's terrible on two fronts. First of all, it implies that I don't trust that you could actually choose to do what's right because it's right. 
I feel that the only way you're going to choose to do what's right is with a threat. So that undermines the value of self that a person might have, that I'm actually, I could be a good person. No, you're not going to be a good person. You have to conform. We've got to bring out the ruler, right? And the second thing is that subliminally, that basically says, don't get caught. It doesn't say be a good person. It says don't get caught. Avoid punishment. That's what we keep doing to young people to a greater or less extent. And then we wonder why if there's not the strong arm of the law or alternatively if the law of the arm is, if the arm of the law is too strong, then we get bad behavior and crime and anarchy and we sit scratching our heads and wondering why. Love to hear your thoughts. You've got a couple of more minutes if you'd like to share something with us. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So wrapping it up, this uh, very interesting and I believe ongoing conversation around capital punishment and what alternatives do we have? There's a frustration in the voice of the person who says, bring back the death penalty, because effectively what they're saying is society seems to be falling apart. People get away with murder quite literally, and the authorities are doing nothing about it. Truth is, if we could rewire the way that people look at themselves, firstly, if people would feel better about themselves, that would help. But more importantly than that, if people would have a sense of higher authority, not visible authority. I am answerable to the absolute authority, whether people see me or whether they don't see me. That's who I'm answerable to. Could you imagine if we could revolutionize that kind of thinking? Yes, I know it's not popular. Everybody's going to tell you, don't push religion down people's throats and separation of uh, religion and state and all that kind of stuff. And, and fine, who said anything about religion? Keep it generic. But instill in children from the youngest age a sense that we are all here by the good grace of a higher power. And we owe a responsibility to that higher power to behave. Not because if we don't, he's going to strike us with lightning or our parents are going to whip us or the cops are going to arrest us. But because we're good, we should get that, drill that into the heads of people. We are good people. That's how we start. No baby is born malicious. We're good people. And we have a connection to and a sense of responsibility to a higher authority that's non-negotiable. There's no circumstance in the world that will ever excuse my responsibility to that higher authority. I can't say nobody was looking. I can't say the police were lax. I can't say that my socioeconomic circumstances or psychological circumstances or family circumstances contributed. I have a responsibility to higher authority. What a magnificent world would be if we could shift that mindset. And we really could. It's not, it's not undoable. It's not impossible. It's absolutely doable. Okay, maybe you can't do it across the whole country, right? Or across the whole world. Fine, so start with the people you know. Start with the school system you have a voice in. Start with the uh, upliftment, social upliftment program that you know of. Talk this language. Let's instill in people a sense of it's not about me and life being as I wish it to be. It's about the greater good and the responsibility that I have towards that greater good. That would be a huge thing to shift people. And if I can just borrow for one second from the Torah portion that we're going to read this week, where we have this horrible debacle of Moses telling the Jewish people, if you really, really want to send spies to check out the land of Israel, or at that point Canaan, go ahead and do it. I, I don't believe it's the right thing, but you want to do it, go ahead and do it. And they come back and it's a disaster and they report badly and everybody freaks out and they complain and they say, we were brought to the desert to die. And God says... You know what, Moses? Let me wipe out this nation and I'll start again from you. 
And Moses says, no. That's not what you taught me. You've seen the commentary of Rashi. He says there's this very interesting interplay between God and, and Moses, where God primed Moses for this already beforehand. And now he expected Moses to give that answer that he had already kind of implanted in his head. And Moses says, no, no, you've got to understand. Or not you've got to understand, I'm talking to God. He says that defeats the purpose. The purpose is we need to show these people that the response to what they've done wrong is not to wipe them out. The response to what they've done wrong is not to say you have no value and you deserve to be completely removed from society. The response is to say, we need to work with you, radically work with you. We've got to snap you out of this. We've got to totally shift your thinking. If we're not going to be able to succeed to do it, we may actually have to remove you from society. And that's why some of those people did die. But ideally, we've got to flip you. We've got to turn you. We can afford to put the real bad guys away and maybe even to execute them, maybe. We can't do it to every single criminal. We can't afford it. And we really need, and it would benefit us if we could turn these people, ideally from a very young age, when the first cracks start to appear, into people who have a sense of their own value, a sense of the value of life, and a sense of responsibility to higher authority. Love to see that kind of thing happening, right? I think we all would. Hashem should bless and protect us. We should be safe from those who might want to harm us. And they should be safe from themselves. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for all the insight, input, and messages. Till next week, have a good Shabbos. Stay safe. And like I always like to say, stay sane.